The SS Teton was a two-funnelled French tug and a familiar sight around the harbour at Saint-Nazaire. It was a reasonably large vessel and easily capable of ferrying the men of 663 out towards the waiting troop transport ships anchored nine miles from the port and five miles off the coast. Van Sank Morgan's army lined up in one long column, three men deep, and slowly clambered aboard the Teton. Some gazed skyward, trying to catch sight of the aircraft they could hear, but not see in the distance. The sun was making occasional glimpses through the haze, and the air was still, but it looked like it would be a bright start to the day. Many of the men were still exhausted from the previous day's march and the air raid that had continued throughout the previous night. Morgan and the other NCOs had woken the men at 043000 hours and they marched through the streets of Saint-Nazaire. Some of the sappers were receiving an earful from the sergeants for not marching like proper soldiers. All along the seafront at Saint-Nazaire, weary troops had lain and slept. Thousands of them, from all parts of the country, had converged on the port. Most were tired, dirty and hungry. After queuing for hours, the men were finally given permission to embark onto the Teton. Around 11.30 that morning, they began to make their way out to the waiting ships, which they could see on the horizon. Some of the men took the opportunity to doze off, whilst others were thinking about what awaited them when they got back to the UK. Major Morgan and the other NCOs had warned his men they might well have to fight the Germans as soon as they landed. Indeed, Morgan had thought that the company would have to fight just to get through to Saint-Nazaire, but they had made it this far without any real difficulty. One thing was now painfully clear, however. Operations had gone disastrously wrong for the real army in the north of France. There was now no hiding the reality. The British army was in full retreat. Whilst there was some elation that 663 were now at last heading home, there was also a sense of tangible despondency among the exhausted men. Some were privately resigned to the seemingly inevitable German victory. As Walter stared back into the wake of the SS Teton and towards the slowly diminishing French coast, all he could feel was humiliation. He, like many of the men of 663, had gone to France to finish a job that their fathers had begun and had not been allowed to complete. Now their sons were looking at a comprehensive and devastating defeat, an imminent German invasion and a future under the jackboot of German fascism. That sense of humiliation had been made worse by the open taunts directed towards the departing troops by some local French inhabitants who knew that the Nazis would be upon them within days. Within 48 hours, the first German stormtroopers were arriving in Nantes and the very billets that had been home to 663 for the previous five months. German troops of the 31st Infantry Division smashed open the doors 
of what had been 663's base and kicked over the discarded rations and broken equipment left by the sappers. There was nothing of any use worth salvaging and no clues to the identities of the men who had lived and slept there over the previous months. The Lancastria dropped anchor in the Carpenter Sea Roads just before 0600 hours. Soon afterwards, the crew started taking the first of the troops on board, initially RAF ground crew who had been stationed at Bougainé Aerodrome. The converted Clyde-built liner's position was recorded in the log, latitude 47.09, longitude 2.20. The Lancastria, now in her official role as one of His Majesty's troopships, HMT, had made her way from Liverpool after being involved in another evacuation mission from Norway. The Norway campaign, which had been planned and devised by Winston Churchill whilst he was first Lord of the Admiralty, had been a complete disaster. During the start of that operation, just a month before, Lancastria had landed British and Canadian troops at Namsos, but was sent back to pick them up as that military strategy unravelled in the face of a decisive and overwhelming German attack. There was something like 20 liners converted into troopships manoeuvring in the cold waters of Namsos, Lancastria's chief officer, Harry Grattage, remembered. The destroyers did the tough job of running in to the mainland and bringing off the soldiers, and we, on the troopships, carried them back. Poles, Canadians, Frenchmen, British troops of the Green Howard Regiment, many nationalities, but all of them dirty and depressed, most of them without rifles. The evacuation of troops out of Saint-Nazaire had a similar feel, although there was not the same urgent desperation to get men away quickly. Everyone seemed to have simply resigned to the depressing inevitability of what was happening. Grattage had been on the bridge since the early morning. Both he and Captain Sharp should have been on shore leave back in Liverpool. But as the situation fell apart in France, they received the order to recall the crew and sail south to help in the evacuation of the remainder of the British expeditionary force. That cool and bright morning, Lancastria was, at the time, the only big liner present, Grattage later recalled. All through the morning, the skies rumbled with the noise of planes that didn't sound too far away. As Sharp looked through his binoculars at the flotilla of vessels making their way out to his ship, a naval transport officer, an NTO, suddenly appeared on the bridge. The naval lieutenant asked, How many can you take? About 3,000 in a pinch, Captain Sharp responded. The fresh-faced officer paused slightly and told Captain Sharp that he must be prepared to take as many men as possible without regard to the limits laid down under international law. Grattage was shocked and with painful memories of Norway looked at the young transport officer and said, Is this another capitulation? The young officer responded tersely but his eyes could not meet those of Grattage. Don't even mention the word. It's merely a temporary movement of troops. 
No one on the bridge, not even the NTO, really believed that. Soon after breakfast, the destroyers started to bring troops out to the waiting ships. Some of them, like HMS Havelock, had accompanied the Lancastria during the evacuation in Norway. Steadily, the situation on board Lancastria became worse as the decks began to get more and more crowded with soldiers sweating in their thick khaki uniforms. Men and crew moving about stumbled against kit bags and tin hats. As Grattage headed down to one of the main steel doorways with a lowered gangway down to the surface, he saw a small tender approaching with troops and a group of refugees on the deck. His eyes were immediately drawn to two children about ten years old. The brother and sister had with them a golden retriever and a black mongrel dog. A tug had brought them out to the Lancastria from the shore, together with a few civilians, Grattage recalled later. Although they were filthy and dishevelled, they had the pale, civilised gravity that you only find in continental children. But what turned my stomach cold was the sight of the dogs that they were clutching tightly to them. I ran to the gangway. There had been much bitterness and argument about quarantine regulations at Gurik a few days before when the Green Howards had brought back many dogs from Norway and I did not aim to have a repetition. You can't have those dogs on board, I told them. You will have to leave them on the tug. The children merely stared back at him, not understanding. Finally, Grattage persuaded one of the elderly English ladies who were with the group to translate what he was saying. Immediately, Grattage saw the boy's face crumble and his lip begin to quiver as his eyes filled with tears. He said nothing but clutched the retriever's neck even tighter. Finally, he began to speak, fast and earnestly, occasionally using the back of his hand to wipe away a tear. He stood there, Grattage remarked later, and pleaded for his rights, like a man. The English lady, who had been translating, looked at Grattage and smiled gently and said, You see, they are not French children, they are Belgian. They've walked from Brussels right across France, keeping just ahead of the German army all the time, until they came to Saint-Nazaire. Yes, yes, Grattage replied. Explain to them that we will take them to safety, but it's forbidden for dogs to come aboard. They say the dogs have walked with them from Belgium too. They say that they cannot be separated now. The Englishwoman looked deep into Grattage's eyes. After a short silence, and when Grattage could no longer bring himself to look into the eyes of the boy, he waved them in, defeated by his own conscience. As he made his way back to the bridge, he remembered the words of the naval transport officer, without regard to the limits of international law. Sometimes, the regulations exist to be broken. An hour later, there would be no arguing about who wanted to remain on board the Lancastria, only a mad, desperate attempt to get off. As the Teton steamed further, it passed another large liner, the SS Orense. The Orense was a two-funnelled ship and the men of 663 could see that its decks too were full of men moving around. Sapper Cyril Coombs looked over the side and towards the vessel the Teton skipper was heading for. 
sea spray splashed up into his face as the vessel manoeuvred through the wake of another departing small boat that had just offloaded men aboard the large liner. None of Van Sank Morgan's boys had heard of the Lancastria before, but as a few more glanced over the side, they could tell she was a very big ship indeed. We're going back in style, Cyril said to himself, as the Teton's engines slowed to an idle, and she started coming level on the Lancastria's starboard side, which was painted battleship grey. Everyone stand up, shouted one of the NCOs. But as they did so, a loading officer from the Lancastria's crew bellowed down from the shell doors that he could take no more troops. We have over 7,200 aboard already and can take no more. Major Morgan responded immediately. Well, another 242 isn't going to make much difference then, before he ordered his men to clamber aboard. A member of 663's driver band... Jimmy Skeels remembered looking up at the rope cargo nets draped over the side of the Lancastria as the rest of the company began to climb up to the open steel doors. Each man had his full kit on and a .303 rifle slung over his shoulder. It was some feat, Jimmy remembered, but once on deck, he was even more shocked to see many men, women and children packed into the vessel. As the men entered the ship, some decided to try and find a spot to sleep and rest on the voyage home. Percy found some space on the starboard foredeck. I discovered years later, Percy reminisced, how people were issued with cabin numbers and table numbers and sat down at tables laid with silver cutlery, gleaming white napery and partook in the finest meal they had eaten in years. Personally, I couldn't even scrounge a cuppa, but I was quite content with my little space on deck. In the army, all you're entitled to is two foot in the ranks. Everywhere you looked, there were men. Some were busy organising their kit, whilst others sat staring at the deck, many puffing on a rolled-up cigarette as their only consolation. Initially, Walter was ordered below decks, like the majority of the company, where it was virtually impossible to move or squeeze past the crowds of soldiers, all with greatcoats and kit bags on. Walter felt a strong sensation of claustrophobia. Occasionally, he caught a glimpse out of a porthole to see yet more ships making their way out to the Lancastria. When Major Morgan arrived on deck, he reported to the orderly room, where a chaotic attempt was being made to organise the units coming aboard and determine where to place the various companies inside Lancastria's vast interior. The bulk of 663 were ordered to make their way to E-Deck in the bowels of the ship and find space where they could. Morgan passed on the instruction to the officers and NCOs to get the men down in an orderly fashion. Major Morgan himself was ordered to take 60 men from Section 4 and one officer and make his way up to the starboard boat deck on the very top of the vessel to act as a guard. The section was to fire only in case of necessity, and in the event that there was an attempt to rush the lifeboats, if the worst happened. Once up on the boat deck, Morgan ordered the section to fix bayonets. 
It became plain, however, that the men were utterly exhausted. So Morgan returned to the orderly room and explained that his boys had had very little sleep in the past 72 hours. He asked if they could have four hours rest before commencing their watch at 1900 hours. The senior officers agreed and advised Morgan that a guard from the AMPC, the Auxiliary Military Pioneer Corps, would take over immediately under the command of Major Glover. On being stood down, the men of Section 4 tried to find space where they could on the boat deck. Major Morgan headed below to D-deck and the single cabin D-69, which he had been allocated. There he took off his great coat and his small kit bag and placed his cap on the bed. The cabin, situated virtually in the middle of the ship, had no porthole windows and was lit only by two dim ceiling light bulbs. Morgan rubbed his eyes with exhaustion before putting his officer's cap back on. He sat on the bed for a short while, his mind running through everything he still had to do and contemplating what lay behind him and what might lie ahead. This would not be like 1918. It looked as if they were all in for a rough time and despite all the horrors he had seen during the First War, Morgan was afraid that the fighting may be even more intense when they finally got back to the UK. Information about how the war was really going was virtually non-existent, although it was obvious the situation was bleak. Morgan was restless and concerned that his men were dispersed widely throughout the ship. He hated indiscipline in the company, although most of the incidents he had had to deal with in France had arisen from the behaviour of some of the company's own NCOs and officers. On several occasions, he had had to lecture them on showing an example to the men by behaving like gentlemen and British officers. Walter was beginning to get hungry, and through the alleyways he could smell the hot, sweet odour of cooking, which was making his mouth water. But it was virtually impossible to move through the dense pack of men who surrounded him. He managed to find a space next to a porthole window and looked out toward the Orensee, anchored about half a mile away and still taking troops aboard. Shortly after 13.30 hours, klaxons and bells inside the ship began to sound, warning of an imminent air raid. Walter couldn't see anything of the attacking planes through the window and there was no apparent panic among the men around him. But as he looked out of the porthole towards the Orensee, he caught something out the corner of his eye as a stick of bombs dropped upon the two-funneled vessel. Large fountains of spray fell all around the Orensee. Up on Lancastria's bridge, Grattage and Captain Sharp looked over towards the attacking planes and their target. At least that's one comfort, Grattage said, as the planes kept up their attack. We've only got one funnel. They seem to think that because she's got two, she's a choicier target. A short time after, another bomber swooped down low, dropping its deadly load and hitting the Orensee's bridge. A large puff of dark grey cloud rose from the ship and debris fragments shot out towards the Lancastria, splashing all around. Walter had seen enough and against orders decided the time had come to get himself topside.
Chief Officer Grattage was on his way back to the bridge after checking with the purser for a second time on the latest total of numbers embarked when the Orency was struck during the second raid. As he climbed the steps, he looked over to his right and saw the rigging on the Orency fall, and at its base, men running. For a few moments, flames swept up towards the bridge, before disappearing amidst the large grey cloud of smoke. Grattage quickly made his way onto the bridge of the Lancastria. A ruddy good job we have two funnels, isn't it? He consoled himself again. Don't speak too soon, Sharp replied. It looks as though we're going to be in for a very sticky time. A very sticky time, indeed. On the foredeck, a sergeant in the Royal Army Signals Corps watched the Junkers 88 bomber sweep in after banking steeply. It then appeared to cross right over his head, but swooped low towards the Orency before releasing four bombs, with only one striking the Orency's bridge. The pilot then climbed steeply eastwards. The sergeant knew it would only be a matter of time before they would be back to try and attack the Lancastria. Walter pushed and shoved his way through the packed decks and away from the smell of hot food being prepared in the luxurious dining rooms and kitchens behind him. On the way, he met one of the other sappers from another section. Where is everyone? Walter asked. Section two are up on the boat deck, replied the sapper, clearly distracted by the smell of food, stretching his neck to see if there was any way through the crowded companionway behind Walter. Walter finally arrived on the boat deck and made his way over to Charlie. Close by was a large pile of white cork Cunard life jackets. Here, take one of these, Charlie said to Walter. They'll make an ideal pillow for the trip back. Walter looked over the guardrails. Positioned at either end, Bren gunners had taken up position, their barrels facing skywards. Still, the drone of planes could be heard, and away off in the distance, the siren at the harbour at Saint-Nazaire was singing away to itself. By twenty past three, Major Morgan had become restless, and so left his cabin and went up to the boat deck to inspect the AMPC guard that had supposedly been sent to take over from Section 4. When he arrived, there was no sign of them or their commanding officer, Major Glover. Morgan headed below once again and ordered one of the sappers to find Company Sergeant Major Muse and instruct him to come to Morgan's cabin to receive orders on stationing a guard on the boat deck. I'm starving, Walter said after standing around on the boat deck for some time. I'll away down and see if the queues have eased, he said to Charlie. Both men stood up and decided it would be better to keep hold of the life belts if they were fastened on. He shook Charlie's hand before heading towards the stern of the ship at the rear of the starboard boat deck. Charlie watched him as he disappeared down the steps. It would prove to be the last time they would ever meet. Walter's girlfriend, Annie, had asked Charlie to look after him as they left Dundee train station six months earlier. This was made virtually impossible as the men were split into two different sections when the company had left Clacton. Nonetheless, both men had bonded on the trip down to the training camp and saw each other frequently in the billets. But at least both men had secured life belts, albeit for the intended purpose of using them as pillows. 
but it would take much more than life jackets to save the men of 663 as the pilot of a Junkers 88 began to configure his aircraft in preparation for an attack on what he later described as a fully loaded transport. On the bridge, Captain Sharp and Chief Officer Grattage were debating about getting underway now the loading of troops had finally ceased. Crewman Michael Sheehan, standing at the Lancastria's wheel, looked on as the two officers discussed the options. The ship was ready to move off, and light grey puffs of smoke from her funnel reminded some of the men of an old man slowly puffing on his pipe. We knew at the time that there were more than 7,000 on board, not including 450 crew, but there was a concern about U-boats operating in the area, Sheehan said later. There is no doubt in my mind that Captain Sharp had a very tough decision to make. At least we had anti-aircraft fire from the destroyer and other ships, and whatever Bren gun and rifle fire that could be set up around us, but we were a sitting duck. As the air raid continued, a nearby destroyer, most likely HMS Havelock, signalled to the Lancastria that if she was full to capacity, she should get underway. Captain Sharp hated war, and he was plainly agitated. Grattage looked on at the heavily built Sharp as he contemplated the options. As far as he knew, at least 7,000 people were aboard, with only one four-inch gun mounted on the stern as defence. What use would that be if the great liner were to be attacked by a submarine or aircraft out at sea? Such was the haste to get to Saint-Nazaire from Lancastria's home port of Liverpool that Sharp did not even have charts to navigate the waters home. In forlorn hope, they returned the destroyer's signal, asking for an escort back. Can you route us if we proceed? But the destroyer did not return the signal, maintaining a discreet silence. Finally, Sharp turned to Grattage, pausing for a few seconds. I think that we'll do better to wait for the Orense and go together. What do you think? Many would later criticise Captain Sharp for this decision, alleging that the ship should never have lingered on with all those men aboard. Grattage thought back to the warning from the French river pilot who had come alongside Lancastria in the early hours as the liner manoeuvred into the mouth of the estuary. In perfect English, the French captain had shouted up to the bridge of the Lancastria, telling them it would not be wise to continue any further, despite the urgency to evacuate as many men as possible. I tell you, monsieur, it will be like putting your head into a noose. La Boche have been bombing us all night, and with daylight their job will be made much easier. When they see you anchored outside, you are a sitting target, he said. On the boat deck, a number of other sappers from 663 had also decided it was time to try and get something to eat, and so headed below. Charlie was left virtually alone, kit bags strewn around him. As he looked up, he saw one of Lancastria's officers, the purser, walking down towards him, his face grey and etched with anxiety. You're looking half a worried. What's wrong? Charlie said in a broad Angus lilt. You'd be worried too, said the purser in reply. 
There's between eight and 9,000 people on this ship, and we've only got enough life-saving equipment for about two and a quarter, two and a half thousand. Years later, when Charlie read the purser's official account, claiming only 6,000 had been loaded, he believed the Lancastria's officer was simply trying to mitigate the almost reckless numbers which had been allowed to board the Lancastria that day. The ship was just chock-a-block, Charlie added. Major Morgan made his way to his cabin, and outside met some of the other officers from 663, Captain Holloway, 2nd Lieutenant Huss, and 2nd Lieutenant Walker. They were standing in the open companionway, a thin wooden panelled partition wall separating them from the funnel which ran through the centre of the ship and down into the engine room. Within a matter of seconds, the ship's alarms and klaxons started again to warn of another incoming air raid. Out of the sun, one of the Bren gunners stationed on the boat deck caught a shimmering glimpse reflected off a cockpit window. Soon after, he heard the dive-bombing yell of the klaxon which was fitted to the Junkers 88 as the bomber began its dive. Where is he? I can't see him! Some of the gunners yelled, shielding their eyes from the sun as they arched their necks upwards towards the sound of the diving plane. Immediately afterwards, the Bren gunners opened up and were followed by small arms fire from all around the deck. Percy heard the banshee scream from the plane and made a desperate headlong dash forward towards the anchor locker that he had used as cover during the earlier raids. Time appeared to slow down as he ran and he suddenly realised that he wasn't going to make it, so dived instead into a six-foot-tall steel wardrobe next to the main hatch, covering number two hold. This cargo hold had been loaded with around 600 RAF ground crew. Percy had no idea what its purpose was, but in the circumstances, it seemed like a safe haven. Inside, there was a wooden bench seat, which Percy sat down on quickly, before peeking out, just in time to see four bombs coming down. Someone shouted, He's going to hit us! For a brief moment, the scream of the diving plane was replaced by the yell of the dropping bombs. Chief Officer Grattage had returned to his cabin, mortally tired. He lay down, but despite his desperation to sleep, he could not do so. I had a sixth sense of waiting for some disaster that I could not name, Grattage recalled later. I looked at my watch. It was 3.40pm. On any normal day, time for a cup of tea. Five minutes later, with his eyes staring at the ceiling, he heard the air raid siren at San Nazaire sound once again. No chance of sleep now, he thought. He stood up and tilted his head slightly, his eyes squinting. He could hear the distinctive sound of a diving plane getting louder and louder, then the sound of the bombs falling. He stood there transfixed for what seemed like a full minute, listening to the longest and most fearful silence he had ever heard. 
In quick succession, three bombs struck Lancastria, with a fourth landing on her port side, blasting a gaping wound into the side of the ship. Under his feet, Grattage could feel the mighty ship buck and shudder ominously, like an animal in pain, he remembered. He ran topside to the bridge. For a moment, it was impossible to see anything as thick, dark smoke billowed over the ship. A crewman, standing beside him, looked ahead. By heaven, sir, this is bad. It was 3.48pm. In the next episode, the Lancastria has been hit and is beginning to list to one side. The men of 663 are scattered in different groups all around the ship. It quickly becomes apparent that the 17,500-tonne liner with thousands of soldiers and refugees aboard is doomed. But the horror is just beginning, as German bombers appear again, flying low level over the sea, as thousands cling on to the rapidly sinking hull, with no hope of survival. <laughs> 